The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Book 7, Chapters 1 and 2. A few weeks later, on a Sunday in March, a group of rich and idle heiresses have gathered in the home of Madame de Gondelaurier and her daughter Fleur de Lys, each of the young women having come to Paris with the hope of being chosen as a maid of honor to meet the Dauphiness Marguerite. Also in their midst is a young aristocratic man of arrogant and swaggering mien, a youthful cavalier in the uniform of a captain of the archers. The young girls interact with each other in a manner meant chiefly to attract attention from him, while he bestows that coveted attention on the belt buckle that he is carefully polishing. From Madame de Gondelaurier's smiles, glances, and whispers in the captain's ear, we are led to gather that she is reveling in his recent betrothal to her daughter. And from his reaction, we are to conclude that this arrangement leaves him horribly bored. Madame de Gondelaurier's efforts to prod him into a declaration of Fleur de Lys's fair beauty or his undying love are met with nothing more than a distracted and dutiful, of course. She pushes the young lovers into a forced and awkward conversation, he struggling to make an appropriately tender comment, she reproachful of the decidedly unromantic words that actually come to his lips. Their embarrassing conversation is cut short by the delighted exclamation of little Berangère de Champchevrier, who has spied a gypsy girl dancing down below in the square in front of Notre-Dame Cathedral. Her lively companions run to the balcony, and the young captain is thus relieved of the duty of attending to his fiancée, a responsibility he had tired of long ago because beneath the fine appearance and elegant dress of this noble gentleman is a crude, coarse, free-spirited philanderer with a lot of easy conquests under his well-polished belt. Fleur de Lys recalls a story from a few months prior of her husband-to-be rescuing a gypsy girl from the clutches of a dozen robbers. And despite the fact that this story is an exaggerated version of the one we the readers witnessed, we are given confirmation that it has the same hero, when Fleur de Lys calls him by his name, Phoebus. As they delightedly watch the gypsy girl from their balcony, the girls notice that she has another, more somber audience. Across the square, from a tower balustrade, a priest stands with the rigidness of a statue and stares at her fixedly. Suddenly, Fleur de Lys is struck with the idea of having Phoebus call the girl up because it will amuse them. Or so she thinks. He does so, and the blushing gypsy girl, clearly recognizing the savior whose name Gringoire had heard her repeatedly mutter under her breath, moves toward them with slow, hesitating steps. From the moment Esmeralda stands on the threshold, it is clear that Fleur de Lys is not, in the least, amused by her. First, her remarkable, striking beauty is unsettling of the equilibrium that had been established among the girls, who were fairly evenly matched in their attractiveness and their rivalry for Phoebus's attention. They are immediately on their guard, and unified as against a common enemy, when they discover that without the benefit of distance, this girl's beauty is so dazzling as to be dangerous. 
Then, obliviously bold, Fleur-de-Lis's coveted fiancé declares the gypsy girl a charming creature, invites her into the room, and asks whether she remembers him. The tone of Esmeralda's response, "'Oh, yes,' is still further disquieting. As he questions Esmeralda about the circumstances of her kidnapping, and marvels at her pity for her own kidnapper, he slips into a coarse, frank, and very comfortable manner of speaking that makes Fleur-de-Lis even more angrily uncomfortable, particularly when he concludes with the charmed exclamation, "'A lovely girl upon my soul!' Unable to challenge this incontestable truth, the girls seek a point of vulnerability, and find it in the petty subject of her clothing. Quote, Unable to carp at her beauty, they attacked her dress. Unquote. Esmeralda bears their scorn with a flush of shame, drooping her eyes, but she raises them beaming with pride and pleasure, while Fleur de Lises fill with tears, when Phoebus again takes her part, declaring her too charming to be concerned with clothing. Fleur de Lise's tears turned to sobs when Berengère, having made friends with Esmeralda's little magic-making goat, exclaims over one of his miracles. On the floor, in boxwood letter tiles, he has spelled out a name. Phoebus. When Fleur de Lise faints and is borne out one way, and Esmeralda flees another, we are not at all surprised to see Phoebus, after only a moment's hesitation, follow the gypsy. In the next chapter, the scene is rewound as we move across the square up to Notre Dame's North Tower and inside the mysterious cell from which the priest, Claude Frollo, is watching Esmeralda in the square. Though he might have appeared from a distance to have had the lifeless stiffness of a statue, our close-up view allows us to see his occasional involuntary shiver and the fire flashing in his eyes. Seeing that Esmeralda, who has always been alone, is this time accompanied by a strange man in a red and yellow coat, Claude Frollo's face grows blacker, and he plunges down the stairs. On his way, he discovers that she has another audience, equally absorbed, but with a charmed and gentle expression, in Quasimodo. Arriving in the square, he discovers that Esmeralda has gone, and that the man in the coat is none other than his former pupil, Pierre Gringoire. When he says Gringoire has matters to explain to him, Gringoire misinterprets him to mean that he owes his teacher an explanation of how he, poet and philosopher, came to assume the mantle of a mountebank. Claude Frollo had something else in mind. When Gringoire has come to the end of his tragic and rambling defense, Claude Frollo begins pressing him with questions. How is it that he is keeping company with the gypsy girl? Has he ever laid a finger upon her? How is he sure she is a virgin? Has he ever laid the tip of a finger upon her? Gringoire answers his questions and shares what he knows about the girl and her history that as a child she traveled through Spain and Catalonia, that she came to France when she was very young, that she fears only two people, the old recluse and a priest, that she never tells fortunes, but only teaches her goat innocent tricks, like how to write the word Phoebus.
This last catches the priest's attention, and while Gringoire believes it to reflect a gypsy's worship of the sun, Claude Frollo is not so sure. Gringoire, in his turn, has just one question for the priest, and one that goes eerily unanswered. What does all this matter to him? The second of my posts was called The Lost Art of Art Appreciation. I have told this story before in other contexts, but since many of you have not heard it, I'll share it again here. It's the story of my first art tour with art appreciation aficionado, Luke Travers. I had always been a words girl and had never much cared for the visual arts. I had the capacity to be deeply moved by literature, but I had never experienced the same sort of emotional response to a painting or a sculpture. In other words, I was Luke's perfect pupil. We were touring a gallery at the Huntington Library in Pasadena, where we came first upon a bust of a woman. Ordinarily, I would have indulged my first reaction, which was that I couldn't relate to it, didn't think she was especially pretty, found her hairstyle dated and formal, couldn't grasp her expression, etc. I simply wouldn't have liked it much at first glance, and would have moved on. But we stopped. We went through a process of what Luke calls reading a work of art. We took time to gaze at it, and we gave careful attention to the details. We noticed the position of her lips, which were slightly parted. We observed that she was glancing over her shoulder. We realized that though her hair was formally arranged, it also was slightly disheveled, with soft curls falling down. She was wearing a silky gown that was falling off her shoulder, almost exposing her breast. Her eyebrows were raised with an expression of surprise and delight, and her gaze appeared to be focused on something in particular in the distance. After inventorying all these observations, Luke asked a question. What sort of a moment did this seem to be? We decided that this woman had to be looking at her lover, experiencing that breathless moment of seeing the object of your affection across a room. He then asked further, not as a question to be answered outright, but to be considered in our own minds. When had we experienced a moment like this? That tour was a revelation. I saw how to understand, connect to, and be moved by a work of visual art. And I saw the value in being a mental art collector, of having at my disposal an array of visual images that capture, dramatize, and exemplify moments that are vital and universal. In reading great literature, I often have the sense that there were times that people better understood this value, or at least that the authors themselves did. This thought occurred to me in reading the last chapters of Notre Dame de Paris. In describing Claude Frollo's cell, Hugo says, quote, The reader has without doubt seen some of those admirable sketches by Rembrandt, that Shakespeare of painting. Among many marvelous engravings, there is one especial etching which is supposed to represent Dr. Faustus, and at which it is impossible to look without being dazzled. It represents a gloomy cell. In the middle is a table loaded with hideous objects, death's heads, spheres, alembics, compasses, hieroglyphic parchments. The doctor is at this table, clad in his coarse greatcoat, 
and covered to the very eyebrows with his fur cap. He has risen from his immense armchair, his clenched fists rest on the table, and he is gazing with curiosity and terror at a luminous circle, formed of magic letters, which gleams from the wall in the background like the solar spectrum in the camera obscura. The cabalistic sun seems to tremble before the eye, and fills the wan cell with its mysterious radiance. It is horrible, and it is beautiful." Unquote. Hugo has effectively done a reading of this painting for us. He clearly had this image stored in his subconscious as one that represents a man engaged in a quasi-mystical quest for knowledge that is simultaneously dark and dazzling. And he connects this image of the sketch to the one being witnessed by Jean Frollo. On its own, the work by Rembrandt, which I have linked to in the Facebook group, would have meant little to me. But I love seeing it through Hugo's eyes, and I love it as a concretization of what it means to have a mental picture gallery of fine art that you can summon for any occasion. I recall a similar moment in the Brothers Karamazov. Dostoevsky, describing the servant Smerdikov, writes, quote, The painter Kramskoy has a remarkable painting entitled The Contemplator. It depicts a forest in winter, and in the forest, standing all by himself on the road, in deepest solitude, a stray little peasant in a ragged caftan and bast shoes. He stands as if he were lost in thought, but he is not thinking. He is contemplating something. If you nudged him, he would give a start and look at you as if he had just woken up, but without understanding anything. It's true that he would come to himself at once, and yet, if he were asked what he had been thinking about while standing there, he would most likely not remember, but would most likely keep hidden away in himself the impression he had been under while contemplating. These impressions are dear to him, and he is most likely storing them up imperceptibly, and even without realizing it. Why and what for, he does not know either. Perhaps, suddenly, having stored up his impressions over many years, he will drop everything and wander off to Jerusalem to save his soul. Or perhaps he will suddenly burn down his native village. Or perhaps he will do both. There are a good many contemplatives among our peasants, and Smerdikov was probably one of them. And he was probably greedily hoarding up his impressions, hardly knowing why." Unquote. The contemplator seems to be a distinctly Dostoevskian type, and it is one I do not entirely have a handle on. It is some version of a man with the capacity for deep but aimless spiritual thought. This is a capacity that, given its combination of grandeur and vacuousness, can lead him to great evil. Like Hugo's, Dostoevsky's subconscious was stocked with images that yielded a perfect mental picture of such a contemplator. One of the things we are doing in this reading group is stocking our subconsciouses with an array of archetypes that help to inform and illuminate our everyday experiences. Whether they take the form of paintings, or of paintings in words, we are building our own personal galleries of great art. The last of my posts was called Dangerous Beauty. 
Certainly one of the most memorable scenes in these last chapters has to be the entrance of Esmeralda. Hugo does a masterful job of bringing to life both the radiance of Esmeralda's beauty and the chill it casts over her rivals. Quote, Her appearance produced a strange effect upon this group of young girls. It is certain that a vague and indistinct desire to please the handsome officer animated them all alike. That his splendid uniform was the aim of all their coquetries, and that as long as he was present, there was a certain secret lurking rivalry among them, which they hardly confessed to themselves, but which nonetheless appeared every instant in their gestures and words. Still, as they were possessed of an almost equal share of beauty, the contest was a fair one, and each might well hope for victory. The gypsy's arrival abruptly destroyed this equilibrium. Her beauty was so remarkable that when she appeared on the threshold of the room, she seemed to diffuse a sort of light peculiar to herself. Shut into this room, in the dark frame of hangings and wainscoting, she was incomparably more beautiful and more radiant than in the public square. She was like a torch brought from broad daylight into darkness. The noble maidens were dazzled in spite of themselves. Unquote. Though Hugo has wrought this scene with the care of a great artist, from the girls' efforts to evade their own secret purposes, to the likening of Esmeralda's beauty to a torch in darkness, to the disrupting effect that beauty has on the precarious balance of the relationships in the room. The scene in general, of jealousy excited by beauty, is a familiar one. I tried to think of an iconic example of such a scene from a movie. Let me know if you can. One that I discovered in my search featured the incomparably and arguably Esmeralda-like beauty of Monica Bellucci, from a movie called Milena. If the reviews can be trusted, it is not a film worth watching, but the scene I've linked to in the Facebook group is priceless. A spoiler in regard to Milena. Apparently the film ends with jealous women beating her, ripping off her clothes, and cutting off her hair. Fortunately, Esmeralda's persecutors were civilized enough to stop at petty criticisms of her dress. That's it for this week's commentary. I'll post your next assignment tomorrow.